0: if you would, and open up to Exodus chapter 14 uh, this morning, and we're going to be looking at uh, the parting of the Red Sea. I think this is one of those stories, those Bible stories that probably most of us, if not all of us, uh, are pretty familiar with. But we often don't take the time to think about these things as adults. Uh, sometimes what happens is we know these stories from our childhood and we say, yes, yes, of course." God parted the Red Sea and saved the Israelites. But then we just kind of move on and we never think about what is God using this for? What would God have me learn from this in my life and grow in my spiritual life? So we're going to read Exodus 14. We're going to pick up kind of in the middle uh, with verse 15, uh, just to kind of summarize some of the early parts of the chapter. Uh, They did start to, to head out. God tells uh, Moses to have the Israelites actually make a turn in their in their fleeing from the Egyptians, so that it makes it look like they're wandering, and this is kind of a, a tactical move, if you will, that's going to provoke Pharaoh uh, to come and chase them down, and he's going to bring uh, his armies, his horses, chariots, six hundred of his elite chariots, and then chariots on top of that uh, against basically a ragtag group of wanderers. So verse 15 will pick up. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The people and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was before that, before the host of the Lord, excuse me, before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, the, and the morning watch, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But, that, but then the people of the Lord, but the people of the Lord walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall uh, to them to their right and to their left. Uh, thus the Lord saved Israel on that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Uh, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, We do ask that you would have things for us to learn, to to help us to grow in our Christian walk and life that you would bless uh, our, our time under your word here today and that your spirit uh, would be at work in our midst. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. As I've already mentioned, I think most of us are familiar uh, with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. But I think it's, it's something that's both familiar and foreign to us. It's, it's familiar to us, as, as many of us have probably heard this before, or maybe you watched the old Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, and you 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 know the story well, but it's it's foreign to us in the sense of how long ago it happened. It's foreign to us in the sense that uh, we don't see God parting the Red Sea uh, every day. And so sometimes we look at these Old Testament Bible stories and we go, what does this have to do with my life? You know, what about my struggles? My struggle is not coming up to the Red Sea and having an enemy trying to kill me. That's nice that God saved them. But how is this relatable? I just want to throw out to you First Corinthians ten eleven, which says this. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. And Paul is there talking about everything that happened During Israelite and the wilderness generation and the Red Sea and all of those things. So these things do serve as an example. They do bring instruction to us. There are things that we should not only learn, but more importantly, things that we should see about the character of God in this passage. The same God that saved these Israelites at the Red Sea is the same God who saves you and I through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the same majesty, the same glory, the same power, the same care for his children. And We often forget that. Our main point this morning is do not fear because the Lord reigns. Do not fear because the Lord reigns. This passage is about the Lord displaying his reign, displaying his glory. And we'll actually see as we go into a bit of chapter 15, as they sing the song of worship after God has delivered him, they focus on saying the Lord reigns forever. The Lord is exalted. They lift up his name. The same thing that we do as believers when we think about what God has done in redeeming and saving us. But you think about your own life. And how often is it that fears crop up? How often is it that we look at our lives and we say to ourselves, man, I'm not trusting God in my circumstances as I know I should be. And so this passage, I think, serves as an example for us. So do not fear because the Lord reigns first this morning. We tend to be fearful even when the Lord is in control. Most of us, I'm sure, know that the Lord is in control. We would confess that the Lord is in control. And yet we get into situations in life and we tend to forget that, maybe not literally forget that, but we fail to apply it and we allow the fear to control us and to crop up. So what we see in this passage, actually, the Lord is raising up Pharaoh to bring him down. This is what he's been showing us all through the early part of Exodus. And this is going to be the final God brings down Pharaoh moment. So, look at verses two and three. The Lord tells the Israelite people to turn back with the people. He says, "Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Uh That's the other reason I didn't read those verses earlier. Uh, Between Migdol and the sea, and in front of Baal." Baal uh, Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea and Pharaoh shall say to the people of shall will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So so God is actually like leading them and directing them not into an open path where they can escape, but a path where the sea is right to their backs Uh, And if you know anything about military strategy, anything about military victories, you don't want to get in a position where you can't retreat. That's essentially how we won uh, the Revolutionary War. We trapped uh, the British on on, uh, the peninsula and um, the boats weren't coming to rescue them and they had to surrender. Uh, and so Washington's army had defeated uh, the British. And so here, this is like a, a tempting trap for Pharaoh. I've got them. Their back is against the sea. Why did I even let them go? Uh, God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart to make him think this way so that he would get the glory. Verse four, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue you and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all the hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse eight, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, the king of Egypt, and he pursued. This is Pharaoh. He pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Then Moses says or in verse 16, 17 and 18, it says, lift up your hand, stretch out your hand over the sea, divided that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. So he's going to make them more stubborn. They're like, we got to get these Israelites at all cost. And then he says, I will get the glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh. And we have seen this developing. This is the whole purpose that God has raised up Pharaoh for. God is going to show that he is God. And you go back to Exodus chapter four and Pharaoh says, I don't know this God. It was an act of defiance. It was an act of rebellion. Who is he that I should listen to him? And God is showing who he is so that we would listen to him. You think about all of Scripture. You think about the the one story that all of Scripture tells in all of its Old Testament passages moving forward, history of redemption, and then into its New Testament. The story is that God gets the glory. The story is that God triumphs ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross and resurrection are a victory. The second coming are a victory. Sin and death and wickedness and evil and even even evil people who stay in rebellion against God. Are defeated. The purpose of the whole story of Scripture is kind of in a nutshell in these two chapters. God gets the glory by making Himself known and saving a people so that they can come and fellowship with Him even while He judges sin. You'll see at the end of chapter 15, he promises to take them uh, to the sanctuary, to his mountain, that God delivers his people so that they can come fellowship with him. He delivers them not just for their sake, but ultimately for their his glory. Why does God save us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's because of our sin, but he also does it so that he gets all the glory. As we said in Sunday school, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord, that he gets all the credit, that he gets all the privilege, that he gets all of the, the accolades and he defeats the enemies, the ultimate enemies being sin, death and the devil. Here, the enemies are Pharaoh. The people is Israel and the sanctuary is going to be Mount Sinai where they can fellowship with God. So Pharaoh does pursue the Israelites. You can see this in verses five and seven. I won't read that. Just look at verse seven, though. He has 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots uh, of Egypt with officers. So so this would be like saying, you know, um, not only uh, did an army take their. Uh, their regular infantry or their regular cavalry or their regular, uh, you know, units. It'd be like also saying in our day and age, they also took the Navy SEALs and JSOC went out with their advanced troops. Uh, he's taking the best of the best uh, chariots against against uh, people on foot is about the equivalent between in our day and age fighting armor and infantry. The tanks are just going to roll right over infantry. The chariots can roll right over The wandering Israelites and they've got nothing, no horses, no, no mobility, probably very few weapons, if at all. It says in verse nine, the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen, and they overtook them and camped at the sea. So they come up and they approach them and God's people begin to get fearful. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared. Greatly, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because we have no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to the in the wilderness to die? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said in Egypt? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, think about this for a moment. What had they just seen in the hand of God? They had just seen ten plagues, a whole series. And you'll remember how how after the third plague, the magicians in Egypt couldn't do it. You remember how humiliated uh, the Egyptian gods were. You remember, most of all, they just had Passover, right? God had sent the angel of death uh, through the land. He killed the firstborn son of everybody that wasn't trusting in him and putting the, the blood over the doorway. And God had, had shielded them who partook in the Passover so that the wrath passed over the houses. God has just shown, I've got this. I can defeat Pharaoh and save you all with one hand tied behind my back. This is no big deal. And they get out here and they are in fear. They are in a panic. Isn't that so like us? We know what God has done in our lives. We know our salvation. Maybe we've even seen things that he's delivered us from in the past. Physical things, illnesses, trials, providing for us uh, when money has been tight or non-existent. And so often we come along to the next trial. We come along to the next big difficulty. And we start to worry. We start to fear. Maybe we even have prayer requests that we've been crying out and praying to the Lord for. And we say, Where are you, God? I don't even know if you're here right now. How quickly we forget the hand of the Lord in our lives. We need to hear this message do not fear. Brothers and sisters, do not fear. Look at verse 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord and he will, that he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. You don't have to pick up a sword. You don't have to march around Jericho seven times. Just sit down and be quiet. I was going to say shut up. I don't know if that's the right word to say, but this is the idea. Just put put a sock in your mouth and watch what God is going to do and trust him. Don't fear this. These verses verses, commands like this are throughout scripture. I'm just going to highlight a few in Isaiah. Fear not, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41:10. if you want to write it down. Isaiah 41:13 and 14. For I, the Lord, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 41, 17 and 18. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Brothers and sisters, fear not. We need to remember that their God In the Exodus is our God. It's the same God, the Lord Almighty, Jehovah, who cares for his people, who provides. How much more? Then those of us who have experienced a greater redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, we haven't just walked through the Red Sea. We've been taken out of sin and death and the penalty and consequences of all of those things. The guilt of sin has been lifted from us. How much more should we be able to stand and fear not? What can man do to me? This is why in the end of Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Look at all he's done for us. He's elected us. He has justified us. He sent his son to die for us. The son lives for us. Do you think he's going to abandon his own having sacrificed his own son and then applied that blood to us? If we've been justified in Christ, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath that comes? How much more will we be given endurance through suffering, just like Christ persevered in suffering? How quickly we forget to look to Jesus who hears our prayers. Let me encourage you with this fear not. Let me also challenge you and say, don't compound fear with a lack of trust. Fear often crops up in our lives. And what I mean by this, don't compound it with a lack of trust. You know, the Israelites saw the armies. Humanly speaking, that was something to fear. But instead of turning to God and saying, God, this is a real problem. These people can kill us. They turned to Moses and they said, why did you even do this? They didn't trust that the hand of God was in this. And so there are things in in life where our our natural human response is to be fearful. A parent wouldn't be a good parent if they didn't have some worry when they took their children to the hospital. But yet you walk into the hospital. Do you trust that God is in control? Or as things get worse and the medical uh, things begin to pile up, do you say, God, I've, I've been to church faithfully. I've been tithing regularly. Why are you doing this to me? It would be better off if I hadn't even been in church on Sunday. It would be better off if I didn't know you. Don't compound things that make us fearful with a lack of trust. Let's keep moving this morning. Second, do not fear because the Lord stretches out his hand on behalf of his people. So Isaiah 41 10. Fear not. I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you go over to Exodus fifteen six, as they're singing the song. Uh, at the sea. They sing in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 12. You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. So yes, I know that physically Moses is the one told to lift up his hands. But the idea here is that God has empowered Moses' servant to, to be kind of the administrator of it. That God is the one doing this, not Moses. Moses doesn't have any special ability except what God is using him to do. So what happens here is that God then stands between his people and their enemies. You see in verse 19, the angel of the Lord, right, this cloud of glory had been leading them out and they're following it. And now the enemies are behind them and the glory cloud moves from the front to the back like a a rear guard action. The the, the warrior in the front swings around and he is now like a wall between the Israelites and the Egyptians. I I submit to you that he didn't have to do it this way. God could have protected them however he wanted. But I think he does it in this visual way so that the people of God would really know and see in a visceral, uh, uh, in in a just a powerful way. God is shielding them. He'd shield them in the Passover, as I've already mentioned, but now the whole glory of God is, is between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Do you think the armies of the Egyptians with all of their chariots are any match to go through a wall of the glory of God? Like Moses is told later on, no one can see my face and live. Could you imagine if the Egyptians had tried to run through this wall? God then has Moses stretch out his hand. Verse 21, he drives the Lord, drives the sea back with a strong east wind that comes all night uh, and they cross on dry land. And there he says it's it's on a wall of water. I don't know how high it is, but I'm sure they're walking and they're looking way up. I don't know if they could like see any fish swimming along like you can at the aquarium when you walk through those tunnels, but it was a wall of water and there was no glass between them and the water. That had to be a little bit nerve wracking at first. But what are your options? Trust that the Lord is doing something and go forward or sit around and wait for the Egyptians to come and get you. As the Egyptians begin to go through verses 23, 24 and 25, God begins to send them into a panic Verse 24, uh, he threw the Egyptian forces in a panic. Verse 25, listen to what they're saying. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So they're in the middle of this and they're starting to be terrified. God is fighting for them. Their chariot wheels begin to get clogged down. Now, now think about that. The the Israelites, and there's probably about a million of them, because I think it says it's like 600,000 men. So not counting women and children, there's at least a million. And they're walking through. And, and if you've ever walked uh, on grass on a rainy day, have you ever been to like the fair where everybody is treading on the path? And even though the path starts out as grass, by the end of the day, it's mud. If that ground wasn't dry ground by the end of the day, it would have been they would have been sinking boot depth into the mud at least. So it is dry ground for all the Egyptians. And then however God does it, the ground begins to come saturated with water. I don't know if he starts to have the walls of water leak just a little bit or if he has it come up or what. But God purposely causes The wheels of the chariots to get clogged down. And it's not because there's more weight, because this ground had previously been dry. It had previously carried a million people across it. And so it says in verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. So all the water just comes crashing down. It says the waters returned and covered the chariots and uh, covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. God wipes them out. And, and this is this is not just a little bit of water that crashes down onto them. This is giant amounts of water. Even if they would have been just by themselves with no armor on, it would have been so much water cascading on them, they wouldn't have been able to swim to the top. I can't even imagine what it is like drowning when you're in a chariot or drowning when you're in full battle armor. God utterly defeats the Egyptians. Look at verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. What is the response here of the people of Israel? They believe God. They believe now finally that Moses really is the servant of the Lord. They turn and they trust. Now, I'm sure at various times they were trusting and there were people that were taking the Passover and trusting. But they go from having this fear a few verses earlier to believing that God saved them. To understanding the power and might and majesty of the Lord. To recognizing his hand of protection upon them. That water, if it hadn't been for the hand of God, could have collapsed at any moment. And it wasn't mere coincidence that all the Israelites made it through and then it collapsed on the Egyptians. It wasn't like the clock was running down and Moses was like, hey, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. It was God will collapse the water when he wants to. And they saw. God really took care of me. God really protected me. God is good. The response here is the response of of humility and faith. They recognized the power of God and believed. You and I, do we recognize the power of God in the gospel? That's salvation that He has for us. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins? And if you've received the forgiveness of sins, He has adopted you to be His child. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, lo, I am with you even till the end of the age. He seals you with the Holy Spirit, securing your redemption He puts the Holy Spirit in you so that when you cry out, Abba, Father, he hears your prayers because the Spirit is in you and Jesus is in heaven as your mediator. Jesus, who saved you, is not going to leave you. The constant challenge in the Christian life is, do I fear man or do I fear God? Am I afraid of the things that man can do to me? Am I afraid of the things that can happen in my life? Am I afraid of the things that can ruin me in a human level? Or do I have such an awe and reverence for God that I know that I need to forsake those things? Fear of the Lord entails two things. One, there is this understanding that that we understand his power and might. And there's a little bit of fear that we don't want to cross. God. But there's also as a child of God, a reverence, a standing in awe that we recognize the awesomeness and and, and the fear of God doesn't leave us if we are a believer in terror of God but with an understanding that I can approach God as my Father because of what the Lord Jesus does. But it leaves me to approach Him on bended knee. In the Gospel, God makes us His friend. Jesus says to His disciples, I now call you my friends in the Gospel of John. And yet we never have just sort of a casual relationship with Jesus We never talk back to him or, or, you know, we can't just walk up to him and, you know, punch him on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, there is still that respect and reverence for him that he is a king. And really, the questions that we are constantly going to be facing in our life in challenges in hardships in, in things that do bring worry and fear. Do I fear God more than I fear the things of the world? Jesus even says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can throw the soul into hell. We fear the judgment of God that he should rightly bring for our sins. And so we turn and we repent and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fear continues not as a terror of him, but as a reverence. Who am I to come before the holy God? Look at all that you saved me from. Look at how sinful I was. Look at how I constantly messed up my life when I tried to do it my way. That's what the world tells us, right? The song, I I did it my way. The old Frank Sinatra song. Uh, The Bon Jovi song, it's my life. Do it your way. That way leads to fear, to worry, to sin, to death. Do you know the Lord? Do you fear the Lord in that right and proper sense of reverencing him? Finally, do not fear this morning because the Lord reigns. I want you to see how the people of God worship in chapter 15. We're not going to go through all of the verses. Uh, We're not going to try to sing the song. I I don't think that would work. Um, You don't want me to try to write music for this. but, But what do they do right after God redeems them? I mean, they just break out in worship and you can see it later on in the chapter. Miriam and and the ladies, they like break out in tambourines and and they start dancing. I mean, they have, for all intents and purposes, a party. They worship God. Don't fear because the Lord reigns. I want you to see what it says. The Lord triumphed. Look at verse uh, one of the chapter says, then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. I like the translation a little bit better that says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. You could literally, the, he is exaltedly exalted. Uh, the NASB, highly exalted. The, the HCSB, highly exalted. The idea here is, yeah, they've seen the glory of God. He's exalted. He's lifted up. We've seen his strength and his power and his might, and we're going to give praise to him. We sing the praise chorus song. He is exalted, forever exalted, the Lord our God. Why? How do we know? Where do we see this? We see this in his acts of redemption. We see this in what he has done in the son's death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Holy Spirit. In his saving us, he gets all the credit. This shows everyone that he is God and we are not. God gets all the glory. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Then they say the Lord is our shield and their strength. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. So they make this personal. He did this for me. There's nothing wrong in worship songs with singing me if you're singing it to give credit to God. Now, we don't want worship songs to be about me and what I did and what, you know, we're not worshiping ourselves. But to say, this is my God, This isn't just God. This isn't just the Lord. This isn't just a Savior. He is my Savior. He has done these things for me. That's what the heart of faith and trust says. He is my Lord and I bend my knee to Him. He is my shepherd, my strength, my shield. And, and He is the exalted one. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to give Him credit. I'm going to exalt Him. Not that God needs that from me. Not that, you know, we talk about lifting up God. Like we can't literally lift up God, right? I can't push him higher, right? I can't make him more God. But it's about saying this is who he is. And I'm going to recognize who he is. We say ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. In other words, give credit where credit is due. You announce and acknowledge what is true. And you're saying, when you say, I exalt him, you're saying, I believe this. The corollary is you're kind of saying, I humble myself because this is who he is and I'm here. And so we make it personal. God is exalted. That's objective. And I exalt him. That's subjective. That I'm giving him the praise and glory due his name. The Lord goes to war for his people. I won't read all of this, but I want you just to see verse three. Uh, and this is a good one for the, the young boys. The Lord is a man of war. And I say it's good for the young boys because when I was a kid, I used to play army and run around and, and, and do all kinds of goofy war game type things. But this is who God is. A warrior who stands up for his people. The Lord is his name. And then it rehearses what he did uh, to Pharaoh. Verse six, how he shatters the enemy. He says in your glorious and power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse seven, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Who can stand against the living God? Who can resist his will? Who can take their armies out? Who can destroy the people of God? When God is on their side, no one give praise to God for these things. Understand that this is who God is and we do not have to fear. And then I want you to notice the very last thing, verses 17 and 18. The Lord's going to reign forever. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you made for your abode, the sanctuary of. O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And you think of how that's repeated in the book of Revelation. He shall reign forever and ever. I can't say those words without like the little part of Handel's Messiah starting to go through my head. And then my head starts to do the echo forever, forever. God reigns forever. And and this is an element that is part of the gospel. The good news of the gospel entails, one, that we can be saved from our sins. Two, that Jesus Christ died to pay for the penalty of our sins. And maybe I should have reversed the order there. Uh, But he died, he paid for the penalty of our sins, and we can receive the forgiveness of sins. But the gospel is also an announcement that the Lord Jesus reigns. That God reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's established this reign by saving a people unto himself through death, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the father. The good news entails your God reigns. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And and if I could just bring in a little bit of Hebrews here, because I can't resist quoting Hebrews or alluding to it. But we don't just go to a Mount Sinai like the people did here when they were redeemed. We go to Mount Zion, the heavenly Zion where the Son sits at the right hand of the Father, and we get fellowship with God, and we see the reign of our God. There is throughout the Psalms the phrase, Sing a new song to the Lord. I think it's an echo. This in Exodus 15 is the song, as God redeems, sing a new song. And in the book of Revelation, we see them singing a new song. There's new, if we could say it this way, there's new verses that they add to the song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor. Let me make one practical suggestion here today. What do you fear? What do you worry about? What you fear and what worries you is often a sign of what we are making more important than God. It's often a sign of, practically speaking, what we're relying on and what we're trusting in. Does your fear drive you back to Christ to confess those things, to ask for an ability to trust him, to trust his hand of providence, even when. You don't get the answers that you want or the response or the resolution that you would like? Or does your fear drive you away from Him? That you become more anxious, that you become panicky, that you become weighed down with worry, that you think that God is not hearing your prayers? I quote with a, a few lines from a book called Running Scared by Ed Welch. He says, in the kingdom of God, the king has made extravagant promises to us, promises of protection, liberation and peace. We respond with our allegiance, which we typically call faith or trust. The essence of faith is not that we trust without evidence, but that we choose sides in whom do we trust. Our allegiance to the kingdom of God is nurtured by the very words of God, especially as they are spoken by King Jesus, and it is demonstrated by our obedience. He says this life of the kingdom means that unlike the rest of the world, we are not going to assume that fear and worry are staples of the human life. Instead, we are going to set on a path to trust more. And worry less. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we all have things that worry us. We all have things that scare us, that cause in us maybe great anxiety. Lord, help us to trust in you. Sometimes you don't take away the symptoms and the feelings of those pressures, but you give us a peace in our soul in the midst of them. Sometimes you don't change the circumstances, but you do bring comfort in the midst of them. And yet other times, Lord, you completely remove the circumstances, you lift the burden, you heal the illness, you you cure whatever the problem is, you bring it to a resolution that was exactly as we wished. But in all these things, help us to trust in you, to recognize that, you know, what's best. The whole fact that Jesus reigns on the throne means that all things are are under His feet, and they are under His control. And He does all things for our good, ultimately. Even the suffering in my life now serves to conform me, to be more like Jesus, to reflect the image of His glory. Help me to trust You, O great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.